0: morning. Warm welcome to everyone here in the sanctuary today as well as those that are listening on T102 and joining us on Facebook Live. I have just a few announcements this morning before we get started with worship. There will be a celebration of life. We're invited to greet the family of Robert Wilkins on Saturday, February 26th in the ministry center between 2 and 4. There will be a short service of remembrance at 4. Also, mark your calendars for Prayer and Praise Night on Sunday, March 27th at 7 o'clock. And I'd like to invite Tori up at this time.
1: Good morning. We are just about two weeks away from the IF Gathering. So, women, you are all invited to come to the IF Gathering for two days of hearing awesome speakers. We're going to have A live praise team. Sharon and a couple from the praise team are going to be leading us in worship. Uh, We're going to have food fellowship. It's going to be an awesome two days. So the If Gathering is on March 4th and 5th. And here's the deal. If you can't come the whole time, if you have something going on Saturday afternoon or Friday evening, just come anyway. Come when you can. Um, So if you can join us for one day, but you can't come the next that is totally fine. We just want you to come and be filled and enjoy this time of learning and worship and being together as uh, sisters in Christ. So if you have any questions um, or you would like to sign up, we are going to close, close the registration next Sunday. That way we can get a good idea for numbers for food and things like that. Um, but if you'd like to sign up, find me after the service or just call the church office and we'll get you registered. Thank you.
0: Now I'd ask everyone who is able to stand and join us in the call to worship. After the call to worship, we will continue to stand and sing the praise song Amazing Grace. <clears throat> I wait patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. Many, Lord, my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you plan for us. None can compare with you. where to I speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you do not desire. But my ears you have opened, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, Here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. invite all the children to come forward for children's chat with Tori
1: good morning good morning how's everyone doing good do you guys have a couple days of school off this week that's so exciting I'm jealous one more day. Oh, you guys get a Monday off? That's not fair. A delay and a two hour delay. Oh, my goodness. That's crazy. <laughs> All right. So, how many of you like to bake or cook? Yeah. What do you like to bake? Cookies? Cookies. Um, muffins. muffins. Oh, wow. That sounds yummy.
2: Cookies.
1: Banana muffins. Yum. Luke, what about you? Toast. (laughs) I like to bake that, too. Okay, so when you're baking, what do you need? Supplies. What else? Ingredients. What else? A bowl, yeah. In an oven. What's something that you might find in this box? A recipe, yes. Your mom and dad might have one of these at home, but you need a recipe. Why do you need a recipe?
2: Yeah,
1: so you know what to put in it. Because if you put too much salt in your cookies, are they going to taste good? No. no. If you put too much flour in your bread, is it going to taste good? No. no, so you have to have, especially for baking, you have to have a recipe and you have to follow it because that's what makes the, the baked goods good, Right. Uh, did you know that God's written a recipe for us? Yeah. What's that recipe? You not know? Do you know? Fruit of, the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit. That's a good one. What else? What, what, where might we find God's recipe? In the, Bible. In the Bible, yes. God has given us a recipe for life, okay? In his word, he has given us everything that we need in order to live for him right so and we're so so lucky because not only did god give us his word but he gave us jesus too and jesus followed god's word perfectly right he was the perfect example on how to live for jesus for for god right so let me ask you this how do we live for jesus By following him, yep. What else? What are some things we can do that show that we're living for Jesus?
2: Praying.
1: Praying, yep.
2: Reading the Bible.
1: Reading the Bible, yep. In order to figure out what's in the recipe, we have to actually open the book, right? What else, Courtney? Praying. What about this one? This one might be a little hard. What about obeying your mom and dad? Does that help us live for Jesus? Why? because we're being nice and cuz yeah and because God tells us to listen to our parents even when we don't want to sometimes, right? Trust me, I struggled with that too. Um what about spending time with Jesus? How do we do that? Praying, reading the Bible, coming to church, going to Sunday school, all of those things. We're missing one thing. What about telling others about Jesus? How can we tell others about Jesus? If someone asked you who Jesus was, what would you say? The Son of God God who died on the cross for our sins, right? So that we could have a relationship with him. All of those things are ways that we can live for Jesus. And we can do that every single day. But in order to know how to live for Jesus, we have to read the recipe. We have to read scripture. We have to know it. And we have to apply it to our lives, all right? So let's pray. And then you guys can go back to your parents. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for giving us your word and for giving us the tools that we need in order to live for you and to um, spread your love to the world around us. God, I pray that today and tomorrow and the next week, Lord, that you would help us to live for you, help us to be obedient to our parents, help us to spend that time with you, Lord, in your word and in prayer, Lord, so we can grow in our relationship with you. We love you and we thank you for all that you are and all that you do. Amen.
3: Amen. Thanks, kids. Thanks, Tori. You guys can head back to your seats. One more announcement before we uh, collect the offering this morning. Um, For those of you who noticed, as you came into the sanctuary this morning, there should have been um, some extra information at the doors. Um, You had the bulletin, like usual, and then there was a stack of these books by the doors as well. Um, the last couple of years during uh, Lent and Advent, we've been doing devotional series that we have been able to read together and study together as a way for us as a church family to focus our hearts and minds in the same direction during those special seasons of the year. And so for Lent this year, we are going to be reading a, a um, devotional by A.W. Tozer called From the Grave, a 40-day Lent devotional. Uh, Ash Wednesday is coming up real soon, first Wednesday in March, which means that is when this devotion will begin. So starting today and also next Sunday, these devotions will be at the door, and they are free for you to take. Um, the church purchased one hundred and. Fifty, hundred, seventy-five 175 copies, I think, I can't remember off the top of my head, um, for you to take and, and read during this Lenten season. Um, if you know someone who would be encouraged by this, and maybe they don't attend church here regularly, by all means, take a copy and pass it along to them as well. We hope that this is a blessing to you, um, to your friends, and to all who may uh, pick up a copy of this and read it. So again, these are available today and next week. I encourage you to pick one up on your way out of church today if you didn't pick one up on your way in. In addition to that, um, I do plan to lead a kind small group Bible study discussion on Sunday nights during Lent that kind of will use this devotion as the foundation. So on Sunday evenings um, in Lent, we're gonna, there's going to be a group that will meet and kind of study the devotion, maybe dig a little deeper into the, some of the themes that were part of the reading for that week. So next week I'll have some more information about when and where that group will be meeting. But I want to encourage you to put that on your radar as well if that's something you're interested in. Um, so our offering this morning does go to support the the painting project here in church, the fund there. Um, so at this time, I want to uh, invite the deacons to come forward and thank Mr. Terry Westman for offering up our special music on the organ. Amen. Amen. Uh, I just want to take a moment. And uh, in fact, you can uh, remain standing. I won't be up here for too long. Uh, But if you notice in your bulletin, if you're one of those people that likes to follow along with the order of worship, you notice there's a part here that says invitation to prayer. Um, So often uh, this is kind of the point in the service where I would stand up and I would offer up the pastoral prayer kind of on behalf of us as a church family. And when I do that, I always invite you to pray with me. And I sure hope that you do take that time to join me in prayer. Uh, but we don't always get an opportunity in the service itself to invite you to offer up your own prayers to the Lord. And so the praise team is going to sing a couple songs here as, as kind of the middle part of our service here. And as they do that, I want to invite you to offer up your prayers to the Lord. Maybe that's just a prayer of praise. And, and by joining in the praise team and singing, that's uh, a way you can do that, offering up your praise and worship to God as a way to thank Him for all that He's done. Uh, but maybe there's something on your hearts. Maybe there's something that, that's weighing you down, and you want to take this time to lift that up to the Lord. I encourage you to do that. And there's so many ways you can do that. You can do that by staying just where you are in your, in your seat. You can stay standing. You can sit down. But if there's something that God is is moving in your heart, if there's something that's weighing you down, I want to encourage you to take these next few moments during these songs to lift up those things to the Lord. Or maybe you've got something that you want someone to pray about for you or pray with you or alongside you. And if that's the case, I want to invite you to come forward as well. I'm going to be just kind of up here by this cross to the side, just kind of kneeling down. And uh, I'm going to be praying for all of us during this time as we worship the Lord together and seek him in song and in prayer. And if there's something that that's, weighing on you that you would like someone to pray for. I invite you to come forward and kneel beside me, or if you can't kneel, just kind of tap me on the shoulder to get, get my attention. i love to pray for you, pray with you during this time. But what I want to encourage us to do now as a church family is, is join together in prayer, both in song and whatever you may be, um, may be praying in your own heart. But let's worship the Lord together through prayer and through song for these next few moments. Let me open us up with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for this time. We thank you that you do invite us into prayer, that that our prayers can be moments of praise and thanksgiving for all that you've done for us. And our prayers may also be times where we cry out and long, Lord, for you to work in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray for each person in the sanctuary, listening on the radio or watching online, that whatever is whatever you are working in their hearts during this time and, maybe over the past weeks or months, Lord, um, that you would work in them at this moment and that they would give it to you in prayer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
4: us that we need you, Lord.
3: invite you to continue to pray with me. Father God, we come before you, and we admit our need for you this morning, Lord. As we spend some time in prayer and in worship today, Lord, we're reminded of just how much we need you, that it is not about us, Lord, but it is about you and everything you've done for us and all of who you are. Lord, many of us carry burdens with us, things that weigh us down and maybe distract our focus from you. And so I pray, Lord, that whatever burdens we are carrying in here this morning, that you would help us to set those aside and focus our full attention on you. Lord, you don't promise to, um, you don't promise to necessarily make our problems go away, but, but as we face those problems, we learn to depend on you more and more. Like the Apostle Paul says, our grace, your grace is sufficient for us because it is your power that is made perfect in our weaknesses. And so we, we rejoice all the more, Lord, that, that we can turn to you, that you meet us in our time of need, that you are our defense, you are our righteousness, and that you invite all who are thirsty to come to you and be satisfied. I pray, Lord, that during our time here this morning, that you would move in our hearts and minds, reaffirm are those promises that you've made us in your word help us to to know that they are true even on days when they don't feel like they are true lord and help us to trust you in every circumstance in the good times and the hard times and everything in between help us to know that you lord our god that you are good and that your faithfulness will never end Lord, we do not only lift up our own burdens, but also the burdens of, of those that are represented in our prayers and concerns list. May you move in a mighty way in each of those lives. May you supply whatever is needed, Lord. And may you work your in, through your spirit in their lives that they would know and sense your presence moving. And may you use all of our lives, every that you would be high and lifted up in all things. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, in the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated.
4: Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter, beginning in chapter 13 at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit after being made alive he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built in it only a few people eight in all were saved through water and this water water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regards to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit.
3: Thanks, Sharon. Let's pray together again. Father God, as we come before you and your word now, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts and minds and open them up to what you have to say to us today. And may you give me words to speak, words of truth and edification this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I mentioned last week as we took a little bit of a, a detour from our time in First Peter that this passage that we were going to look at today is one of the most kind of difficult, maybe hard to understand passages in the New Testament. And we'll talk about why in just a moment. But as I was preparing for today, I was I was really hoping, you know, the, the person who does children's chat usually does such a great job focusing in on the message, right? And, and I sometimes stand up here and say, I couldn't have said it any better myself, you know, and, and I was really hoping, Tori, you'd have something for me today because this passage is a little difficult, but I guess we'll manage manage without it. But you did do a wonderful job with children's chat. Um, just uh, want to kind of recap just for a moment where we've been since it has been a couple of weeks. We're kind of picking up right in the middle of, of Peter's line of, of argument here in, in chapter 3. And if you recall, he had spent verses 8 through 17, talking about how believers will experience unjust suffering as a result of following Christ. Remember the theme that we've kind of have been focusing on throughout 1 Peter is about living faithfully in a fallen world. And so it's no surprise that we'll experience pushback from the world if we're attempting to follow Jesus with our lives. And so we're going to kind of build on that here today. And our scripture's Divided into two halves. First, we're going to look at the rest of chapter three, which describes Jesus's victory over sin and death, and then we'll look at what that victory means for the believer in chapter four, verses one through six. And so, let's pick up in verse eighteen of chapter three. Peter reminds us in in these first couple verses that Christ's victory comes through suffering, just as the believers have suffered for choosing to follow Christ. Peter points them to the fact that Christ himself suffered unjustly on our behalf. And that gives believers hope. Christ's death led to salvation and exaltation. And so their suffering too will be redeemed in the same way. He says here in verse 18 that Christ suffered once for sins. It's a reminder that Jesus' sacrifice, his death, was the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. That that one sacrifice... That one death was enough to forgive all of our sins, right? Jesus doesn't need to keep on sacrificing himself when we continue to sin, but his sacrifice was a once-for-all payment for our sins. Which for the believer, that's assurance right there, because it means that not only have my past sins have been forgiven, but my current sins and also my future sins have also been forgiven. Jesus' sacrifice was enough to cover our sins. And praise God for that. In Hebrews 7.27, the author there reminds us that unlike the other high priests, he, speaking of Jesus, does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. that's, That's the hope that we have in Christ. His sacrifice is enough for us. And it says that back in 1 Peter chapter 3, that he was the, it was the exchange, the righteous for the unrighteous. right? Jesus was the perfectly obedient Son of God. The one person who ever lived who didn't deserve to die. Yet He died for us. He exchanged His righteousness for our unrighteousness. In Second Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. All right, do you see the exchange that's taking place there as Paul spells it out for us? Jesus took his, our unrighteousness upon himself, and in return we receive his righteousness through his death and his resurrection. It's this great exchange that, that we don't deserve, yet through God's love for us, he allows it to happen. And that's why Peter goes on to say that his death... His unjust suffering ultimately serves the purpose of bringing us back to God, right? To reconcile us to him. The sin that once separated us from God, right? The reason that that Adam and Eve had to be kicked out of the garden in the first place was gone. Through Christ, sin has been removed. The penalty of sin has been paid. And so we can now once again be in relationship with God like we were meant to be. And now nothing, as Paul says in Romans eight thirty nine, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? That's the victory that came through suffering. Right? That's the hope that we as Christ followers have because Jesus died for us. He was put to death in the body. Right, Paul, Peter there is speaking about the crucifixion. Jesus was put to death in the body but was made alive by the Spirit. So it wasn't just his death that did the trick, right? It was the resurrection as well. It was his death being put to death in the body, but justification, right? His death and his resurrection together are the key to it, right? Think about it. Many good people have lived. Many very good, very righteous people have lived good lives, upstanding lives. There are also many people who have, given their lives in service to others or even to sacrifice themselves for others. I think often of soldiers in wartime or first responders like firefighters and policemen who step into the line, step into harm's way in order to save people, maybe even complete strangers that they've never met before. And those are all good and wonderful and and, and praiseworthy acts. But let me put something very bluntly. Right, the difference between those good and honorable sacrifices and the saving death of Jesus Christ on the cross is the resurrection. Right, the difference is that Jesus is alive today, and that changes everything. Right, The resurrection is what makes all the difference. Many people have given their lives for, in service to others, but only Jesus took his life back up after doing so. And so Jesus' victory came through suffering, And it was then proclaimed over all creation. And this is where the passage gets a little, maybe dicey, I guess I'll say. This is where some of the difficulties in in interpretation come in, is what it means that Christ proclaimed his victory and proclaimed the gospel after his death and resurrection. Well, through the death and resurrection, Jesus' victory over sin and death is proclaimed throughout all creation. Right. That the resurrection is the announcement that God has won. Right. Victory has been achieved. But the difficult question here for us today is, is who are these dis, dis, um, excuse me, not disembodied uh, disobedient imprisoned spirits that they talk about in verses 19 through 20? right there 's a, there's a variety of interpretations, and we don 't have the time of course this morning to to cover all the nuances in different directions there's some who who think these these imprisoned disobedient spirits are are fallen angels right that that um, that fell back before you know the garden right with the, the first fall of Satan. and then there are some who think these imprisoned disobedient spirits are simply those sinful people who died right during the days of Noah outside of saving faith in God. And so whatever your interpretation comes down to and I think either one of those interpretations is possible whatever your understanding of that comes down to is the bottom line is this that that when Jesus's victory is proclaimed it is proclaimed over all creation. In other words when when it says that Jesus preached the gospel Right, when it says that he went in and proclaimed excuse me, when we find it here, it says after being made live, he made proclamation right to those imprisoned spirits. Right? And when he when it talks about that, that proclamation isn't isn't a second chance of salvation to those who have already died. Right? And that's and that's where this sometimes gets confusing. People sometimes look at this passage and say, "Well, does this mean that those who died have a second chance of being saved?" And I don't think that's necessarily what this passage is teaching. What this passage is teaching is not a, a second chance after death. We know from Scripture that that, from the the testimony of Scripture throughout that, that we have, we live one life and we have the chance to trust in Christ here and now, right? Not after we die. And so what I think Peter's getting at here is that through his death and resurrection, that victory is being announced to all creation, including those who chose to reject it in the first place, right? So this isn't so much a, a, a second chance or second invitation to salvation as it is Jesus' announcement that victory has been achieved. Right? Think of the scenes of what it was like in, in places like New York City and all around this country at the end of World War II right, after, during VE Day, right, the Victory in Europe Day, and the, the proclamations that were made, I think Carolyn was up here talking about it, right, in the, the newspaper um, a couple weeks ago, right, that Jesus' proclamation here is proclamation of victory, that through his death and his resurrection, victory over sin and death over the enemy has been achieved, and it is a cause of celebration for those who embrace Christ, who trust God through faith, but it's also an announcement of defeat for those who reject Christ, like the fallen angels or those who are disobedient. Right, the gospel at its core is an announcement of a past event. Right? Even when we proclaim the gospel now, what we're doing is we're proclaiming something that has already been achieved for us. Right? The gospel isn't pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do better. The gospel is Jesus died for you. And was raised to life, and you can experience that salvation because of Jesus. Right? It's a it's a, an announcement of something that has already taken place. Right? Victory was achieved on that day two thousand years ago with the cross and the empty tomb. The war itself is over, though there are still battles. Right? Sin is still very real, and we know the how. But we know how the story ends. Christ wins, sin and hell are defeated, and those who trust in Christ will share in his victory. And so Peter then goes on to talk, use the example of Noah to maybe try to explain what he means. Right? He talks about salvation through judgment. That Peter uses this story to underscore his point that God's victory, God's salvation comes through judgment. In Noah's day, it was the judgment of the flood. Right? There's this Statement in Genesis 6-5, uh, which, is, which is the beginning, the intro to the flood story, and it says that every human heart was only thinking of evil all of the time. Right? It's a pretty strong statement, and unfortunately, I don't think a whole lot has changed in the couple thousand years since then. Right? The inclination of every human heart, apart from Christ, apart from His saving grace, is only evil all the time. And so the flood was God's judgment against sin. And by his grace, right, he saved Noah and his family. He warned them of the coming judgment. In faith, Noah built the ark. And through that faith, right, through their trust in God, God rescued them from their flood. Except the problem is the flood didn't fix the sin problem. Right, God, we all know that people continue to sin. And God promised, so God promised to never flood the earth again. Instead, God aimed his righteous judgment towards sin at Jesus. He is the true ark. And those who are in Christ, who've put their faith in him and have been united with him through faith, are saved. Talks here about God's patience. right? God's patience is what leads to salvation. God could have just wiped his hands and been done with us long ago. But yet he chose to be patient. He chose to to wait patiently so that we can come to him in faith. In his next letter in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, "Do not forget this one thing, dear friends: with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. Instead he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance." See God is patient so that we have time to repent and turn to him. And then here's the other tricky part of this passage. Peter then goes on to equate this this idea of the flood and the ark with the practice of baptism. And I think he's building on this theme of proclamation because baptism kind of at its core is a proclamation of God's saving work in a person's life. See, the idea of passing through water is a symbol of God's salvation throughout Scripture. you got no Israelites crossing through the Jordan into the Promised Land. And, of course, baptism itself corresponds to salvation in the same way. It's an outward sign of an inward and spiritual reality. It's a public statement of God's salvation. In other words, it's not the water that saves, not the physical act of baptism. It points to something greater. It's the appeal of a good conscience. In other words, it's, it's, a, it's a testimony, it's a proclamation of faith in what God has done for us through Christ. Again, the physical act of baptism doesn't save, but it does point to the thing that does. It points to the death and resurrection of Jesus, and He's the one who saves people from their sins. Third here, we see that Christ's victory is experienced now through the ascension and exaltation of Jesus Christ. He is alive and seated at the right hand of the Father. And that is where our assurance comes from. Again, not the physical act of baptism, not from being a good person, not from church membership in the right church. Our assurance comes and our hope lies in the resurrection of Jesus. He is alive today. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that makes all the difference in the world. His victory was proclaimed over the disobedient spirits and is, now exer- excuse me, and is now being exercised in the highest heaven. No one can deny his victory. And it is, he, it is Jesus who has all authority over angels, over powers, over all authorities. Again, make no mistake, the struggle against sin is real. It does impact our lives and the world we live in. But victory is already guaranteed through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So quickly, I want to just I want to give you some some um, follow up here about what it, what this victory means for us for believers, and we see that from the first six verses of chapter four. The first thing we see is that it means that we need to reorder our priorities. Jesus suffered and died for us, so we must now live for Him. We need to put God. First, ahead of our comfort, ahead of our desires, ahead of what we think is best for us, and choose to follow him. It involves denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus. It says that we're done with sin, right? What Peter does not mean is that the born-again believer will never sin again. We all know from personal experience that that is just not true. But we are free from the penalty of sin, even though we still battle against the power of it in our lives. Sin no longer defines us. It's not our primary, our primary identity. For the one who has put their faith in Christ, their primary identity is now a redeemed child of God. Right? So we are no longer defined by our sin. We are no longer identified by our sin. We are forgiven and set free from the penalty of sin itself. And he goes on to then explain what it means to be done with sin. And and it means that reprioritizing of our lives, living for God, not our selfish desires. You will prioritize the things you love. You will make time for them. And so my question for you is, what do your priorities reveal about your commitment to Jesus? Can people tell by looking at your life that you're a Christ follower? By the way you act, the things you do, the way you spend your time and your money? that leads to the second point here. We need to reprioritize our lives, and that will lead us to living differently than the rest of the world. Though there should be a discernible difference between the person who chooses to follow Christ and the unbelieving world that we live in. He says here in verse, uh, verse 5, I think it is, in verse 4, that that, that, people, that the unbelieving world should be surprised that we don't just follow along with them in doing the things that they do. Holiness was a big theme so far in First Peter and holiness is about being set apart, about being distinct. When we live in the victory of Jesus, the world will notice a difference. And finally, we see we are called to live to impress the judge that actually matters. Remember at the end of chapter 3 it says that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father, right? He has all authority in heaven and earth. He's the one who will judge the living and the dead, right? The world may judge us. The world will judge us, right? They will ridicule us. They will put us down for for living for Christ. Maybe the way that you live Right? and trying to follow Jesus puts you at odds with the people you work with or, or even sometimes your own family members. And so the world will judge us according to their standards, but we need to not be so preoccupied by their standards. We need to focus on the judge who really matters, and that is Christ. In other words, we need to live to impress him, not the, not the unbelieving world. Right? This is the gospel that is preached to those who are dead. Right? Again, it's the same faith that saves us now. Is the same faith that saved believers in the past. Old Testament heroes like Noah and Moses, David. Right? These these people that lived before Christ, they didn't they didn't live under a different set of rules or a different standard. Right? It was still faith in God that saved them. It wasn't their good works. It wasn't their obedience. It was their faith. In God, look at the example of Abraham. Right? Paul uses this example in the book of Galatians. He says, "Look at the life of Abraham." In Genesis 15, it says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Right? It is that saving faith in Christ. That is the gospel. It is God who saves us. We are unable to save ourselves, and it is ultimately accomplished through the faith through faith in Christ and through his death and resurrection. All right, the world may judge us based on purely human standards, right? That's fine. Let them judge. Right? But we know that that in Christ we are made alive and that's what makes the difference. He has achieved the victory for us. We are called to live for him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Um, and we thank you for the victory that you have accomplished through Jesus Christ. Um, Lord, help us to live in light of that victory. Lord, help us to set aside our sinful, selfish desires and put you first in our lives. And help us prioritize you, our commitment to you over everything else. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand. Um, Sharon and Sue, are there marked verses of Just As I Am? No? All right, well let's go for it. <laughs> let's let's stand to sing number three forty two, just as I am.